subscribe and rate it. Five stars. Good afternoon, Bobo. How you doing today? What's up, Cliff? Um, thrash. Just got back from my two and a half week film sesh. Oh man, you have been gone for a long time. We almost crossed paths a few times too. You've been all over the Pacific Northwest in the woods filming. I can only imagine you are beat just about to death. Dude, I'm I'm worked. We had a, the last couple of days were pretty mellow. We were at Tom Powell's place, the tranquil place. So it was, that was that. I was just so beat by the time I got there. Though it was it was nice. So I was just so relaxing there and. <laughs> Yeah, but I was just run down to the point of just breaking. Uh, well, Tom's is a good place to recoup. You know, it's like one of those Bacta tanks in Star Wars or, you know, it's like a, a Valinor or something where all the elves go after they die in Middle Earth. It's just a place to rejuvenate yourself and heal. So I'm glad you had a chance to spend a few days out there. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. It's always cool to hear Tom talk. Yeah. Did you uh, have a chance to do any Bigfoot stuff on the road? I know you were doing all Bigfoot stuff, but did you hear or see anything cool you can share? Or is that all left up to the production and you got to stay quiet about it? No, we, we had uh, stuff a couple nights. Well, I had a pretty close encounter on my trip, man. Um, my, my, my museum members know about it because uh, I was filming while most of this was happening. Um, it was a pretty exciting little thing that happened. So I was hiking this little lake up and up, kind of near Lake Lake Quinault in that general area. There's this one little spot that has been producing footprints for the, like the last maybe ten years, and they're always on the trail. Um, so it's it, but it's a common place. It's in it's an Olympic National Park. Um, so. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to go hike the trail just because this is the time of year that that stuff kind of comes from, you know, like the, all the footprints appear this time of year, May, June, and July. So um, I get up there and it's five o'clock. So I know all the tourists are going to be gone and it's getting to be dusk when all the animals are out and I figure, okay, I'm going to do a, a little solo hike here, about a mile or so, a little bit more than a mile back to this little lake. And so uh, I'm on the path and I'm, I'm hiking and I'm filming stuff for the, our, our museum members because our museum members, you know, if you're a member of the museum, you actually get uh, two free documentaries that we make in-house every single month. So I was thinking, oh, that's a great opportunity for some content. So I'm filming it and everything, hiking back on the trail. And I come around this corner. I'm almost to the lake, like, like 200 yards, 300 yards from the lake. I come around the, this big rock wall corner and right there, 25, 30 feet in front of me, there's a black bear standing up on its hind legs. It was sniffing the air because the wind is at my back. It could smell me coming, but it couldn't figure me out. And like, I, I go, oh, cool, the black bear. And then I come to my senses and say, oh, crap, a black bear, because I'm a, I'm a mile from my car. Right. And I, and I don't have a firearm on me or anything. I do have bear spray though, for whatever reason, I was lucky enough to take some bear spray with me. And so I, I, we look at each other and I go, ah, get out of here. And that, that kind of thing. And, and it kind of looks at me like, well, God, you didn't have to do that. You know, kind of wanders away, you know, kind of a little annoyed at me. And so I back away in, by the rock wall, you know, to make sure I can, you know, check which, if it's coming after me, I'm going to see it and stuff. And it didn't, of course, but I'm, I'm, you know, about, 30 feet back on the, on the, on the path now than I was. And I'm, I'm talking to the cameras, telling the camera and my members what, what just happened and everything. And then I hear breaking of branches and scraping of bark. I go, Oh, I think it's going up a tree. And then I can see the tree move and I, okay, cool. It's going up the tree. Cause I'm, I'm like, you know, punishing myself now saying, Oh man, you blew the shot. This would have been really cool. My members could have seen a black bear up close. I can't believe I blew it. 
And then so I peek my head around the corner and I see the tree and I go, okay, well, the bear's up in the tree. I'm going to film the, film the bear. So I step out into the, the path or whatever and I kind of walk over and I'm looking up in the tree. Oh, there it is. And I, I, you know, I'm trying to get my viewfinder on it, you know, my camera on it and looking at the viewfinder. And of course, the camera is focusing on all the leaves in the foreground and causing problems. And I'm not getting a good shot of the bear. And when I finally line up the bear in the viewfinder, I, I'm looking at it and go, that's not the same bear. Oh crap! That's a different bear, and I, I take was the it camera. cubs. Well, it was a yearling, is what it was. It was a yearling, so not quite cubs, but you know, mom. So I saw mom, and then I take the camera down, and there's mom. The, you know, I, the initial encounter was twenty five or thirty feet, and now she's at four, thirty five or forty feet, far too close, and easily that distance is easily closed by a black bear in a matter of a few seconds. And um, I, I see mom, and she's looking at me like what the hell are you doing? You're not acting like all those other humans do. And, and, uh, and I, so I just like yell it a few more times and back up and it, it was an adrenaline filled moment to say the very least. You run into a lazy mom. You're lucky. Oh, I'm very lucky. A pretty, a pretty well-fed mom too, by the looks of her. She was as tall as I was, bubs. I mean, I know I'm not the tallest guy in the world. You are, but, um, yeah, it was, it was as tall as I was and it, it was, it was a very well-fed mother. The most ferocious black bear mother I saw was two years ago up in the Klamath, and uh, it was only about 140, 150 pounds. She had two little runty cubs, and I was in my truck driving. She charged so fast. I, it was the fastest bear I ever saw by far, and she was so vicious and just snarling and stomping the ground and swinging her paws at us and didn't get within 100 feet of us, but, man, it was intimidating. I was like, oh, my God, if I was on foot, she could have got me like in literally like she could have closed that hundred feet in like two and a half seconds. Well, I'll tell you, I, I backed out for a long time with the bear spray out and the, the safety was off. And you know, and as I was leaving, they were making this oh, 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 noise like that over and over again. And I heard the same noise about halfway back to my car, but from the other side of the trail. And I'm thinking, man, there might've been a, another one around. Yeah. So it was, it was a, it was an adrenaline filled, you know, one mile hike back to my car. I'll tell you that much. That's cool, though. Yeah, we. I almost went down that trail like two days before you did. I was right in the Quinault. Yeah, what a great area. Yeah, and then you know, I spent that that night, the, the next night on that that Forest Road Twenty One on public land off the reservation. Um, nothing happened out there, of course. Um, tried to get up to uh, you know some little spot up by um, in between the coast and Highway One Hundred One, but uh, the road was washed out. So anyway, I had a couple of nights of solo camping. It was really cool. Enjoyed it. Dropped by uh, one of our uh, former guests' house, you know, Robert, that we had on maybe about two months ago. Dropped by his house, and stuff's been happening this past week. They've been hearing whistles and things like that on the property. I was there like two nights ahead of you, and there was whistles going on. Oh, yeah. It was about the same time frame there. Um, did, you saw the cast, right, that they got out of their garden last fall? Yeah. Yeah, he gave that to me, so I'm going to be cleaning that off and getting a little deeper into it and fixing it because it, it it was a bad plaster pour apparently, and it didn't hold together very well. But he's not very practiced in this, um, which is again a good reason for our listeners to try to go out to the garden, step in their own garden, and cast their own footprints for a little bit of practice. But it's okay. Um, Robert didn't make any mistakes or anything like that. He just it, it wasn't a good pour, and that happens to the best of us sometimes. Um, so I'm going to fix that cast and clean it up and see what kind of information we can pull out of that. So. And so one in the city of saying, hey, I don't have a garden other than the apartment. You can just go out and find a big pile of dog feces and use that. Yeah, that's the boba way to do things. There's there's cleaner, more sanitary ways to do it. You could just go to a playground or, you know, the, the city garden or something like that. But if you happen to have enough dog feces lying around, you can try the bobo method. 
Um, just make do with what you got. I suppose so. I suppose so. All right. Well, you know, this is um, this is our uh, our June Q and A. So um, these are our favorite episodes to do. This is when our listeners can actually write in questions to our um, email address. But we have a new feature this month. If you remember, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about um, a phone line that you can actually call us. We won't pick up, by the way. It's just a recording. But you can phone us and actually ask the question yourself, so you can hear your own voice on Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. And we're going to break out that. That feature today. In fact, but we're going to start with a couple of those questions so we can actually hear our listeners' voices, their melodic tones of their vocal cords. So um, we're going to start with the first question. Um, why don't we jump in and listen to our first listener? Hey guys, it's Mike uh, Bobo. Haven't seen you a while since New York Comic Con. Uh, Cliff just saw you back in November. You know, it was great to see you guys again. And um, yeah, I'm, I've been loving the podcast. It's been my favorite podcast I listen to every week, and it's just so it just just it just makes my love of Bigfoot just so much bigger every time I hear it. I'm yeah, you know, and when we are also going back to Kentucky this year for CryptidCon in November, so I'm hoping that you guys will be there. And Bobo, I, I got to see my favorite Bigfooter again. So have a good day, you guys, and, and keep it squatchy. Yeah, I think that's Michael Madden, our very first Funny Bigfoot fan, the first guy that contacted me about the show. And he's been very dedicated and cool guy. And he started off, he's like a young teenager when we met him. Now he's a young man. And I haven't seen him forever, but um, yeah, he's a cool guy and glad he's still listening and following us. Yeah, that's great. And of course, I'll be in, I'll be in Crypticon, I think, this year. Um, I don't know if Bubba will, but you did mention you wanted to see your favorite big, you wanted to see your favorite Squatcher. So I'm assuming you're talking about me, right? He was, but I'm not going to be there. Sorry. Yeah, it must be talking about me. I'm kidding, of course. He did direct the question directly to you, so. (laughs) Right. All right, well, there there you go. That's a taste of a way. You can hear your own voice next time. If you do want to submit a question or whatever, go to uh, BigfootAndBeyondPodcast.com, and and, um, you can follow the links there so you can, a way you can call in and uh, leave a voice message for us, so. Hello, guys. This is Dave Middleton from L.A., that's lower Alabama. I just wanted to start off by saying I love the show. It's so great. Y'all make it seem like we're just hanging out, listen to y'all BS and talk Sasquatch, and I love it. My question for you is, I understand that there's photos and video out there that leaves no doubt of the existence of Sasquatch. Some say it will never, ever go public unless it's discovered. I'm really curious how much of those you've seen that leave no doubt. I'd like your thoughts and comments on what you have seen. Keep up the good work, guys, and y'all have a wonderful day. Well, there's absolutely nothing better than Patty uh, that I know of, but we've seen that still, uh, the still, those those two stills, Cliff, from that one video that the guy we know, the real strange looking one that couldn't be a human. Oh, I've I've only seen one. I've only seen one frame from that. That's all he would share with me, and he would never actually lend me the picture or anything. So it wouldn't be a nail in the coffin like this is final proof that that it couldn't be a human. No, no, no. There, there's this one gentleman that uh, got a hold of a picture through his sister's work friend or something like that, and it, it, it the the one still from the video I've seen is just so weird. Just it's gangly and thin, and the body proportions are way off. There is no way, in my opinion, it could possibly be a suit because a human wouldn't fit in it. 
uh, just there's no way that you could contort a human, even like the, the strangely proportioned humans that they use for horror films and all that kind of thing. You know, those people who get those gigs, uh, the contortionist sort of people. I don't see how it could be a person. I just simply can't see how that could be a person in a suit. It couldn't be. And it's about a minute video. It's in broad daylight, unobstructed from like 50, 60 feet away with an iPhone. So, I mean, it's from what he said and how he compared it to the still, like, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, but we'll never see that, I don't think, because he doesn't have the rights to share it. And I think he scared off the witness. The witness was really, really cautious about giving out his information, didn't want anybody to know who it was. So this guy showed up to his work demanding to talk to him. It's like, that's exactly the wrong way to handle these sort of things. Um, but then again, maybe, maybe what I heard wasn't correct, and he did it with a more soft hand, I guess, a softer hand. But um, I don't know. And of course, I, I was trying to, he asked me, like, what do you do to verify this? Well, you go to the site with a range finder and you take some, some comparison photographs and, you know, bring a tape measure and all this sort of stuff. And the response was, well, no, I think I'll just go there and, and I'll feel, I'll feel, I'll feel things. And if it feels right to me, then I'll know it's a real picture. It's like, oh God, no, don't do that. That's not, you know, your subjective opinion doesn't matter. He went there and found the site. Did he do anything beyond that, or did he feel that it was a, a good picture? He eyeballed the distance. I think it was like 60 feet. No, it's unfortunate he didn't do anything further, because that was a really interesting, compelling picture. But, you know, the picture's still out there. Maybe someday the owner will uh, share it. So Hopefully he shares the whole video. That would be fantastic. That'd be fantastic. But There's uh, some other good photos out there, and I've seen a few good, but nothing as good as PG film. No, no, there's nothing out there as good as that because the Patterson-Gimlin film is, you know, 20 or 18 to 24 frames a second. So every second you have 20 plus pictures of the thing. And the way it moves is so compelling. And really, when he was, he was saying that uh, it was Dave, I think, Dave Middleton, I think his name was, our listener who asked the question. And he asked, like, are there pictures out there that would put the whole thing to rest, basically? And th no, the picture is never enough. It's the analysis and the work of researchers behind the scenes digging into the evidence itself. That's the compelling part. You know, you can show a picture to somebody and say, oh, I think that's real or I don't think that's real. Um, but who cares what you think? It's the evidence behind it. That it. It's the analysis of the photograph that is compelling. It's not what you think about it. Your opinion or my opinion, for that matter, is just as good as everybody else's, which is pretty worthless at the end of the day. It, it's, the, it's the numbers. It's crunching numbers and doing the math and squeezing things out of the uh, – squeezing information out of the images that makes it compelling, in my opinion at least. But then I just said, what is my opinion worth? Not much. That's not an opinion. That's a fact. Without due diligence and research and measurements, it's just an opinion. Yeah, it's just an opinion, like an opinion. We all have one, just like we all have something else. Yeah, yeah. What do they say? We all uh, Opinions are like buttholes. We all have one and they all stink. Yeah. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. All right, let's go to the next question. Hello, my name is David Pearl. I'm a Bigfoot researcher and also fan of Finding Bigfoot and admired you guys for a long time. My question is, have you ever guys thought about having a wildlife vet on your show to, to discuss tranquilizing a Bigfoot? Well, with tranquilizing, the reason that's not really a viable option is you have to know the specific weight, what the heart rate is, what their metabolism is. You could make a concoction for an 800-pounder, but you see a 300-pounder, you shoot it, you could overdose it, or vice versa. You make a concoction for a 400-pounder, you see a 900-pounder, all you do is piss it off with a dart. You're not going to you know, put it down. So 
it's just not really a viable option as far as that goes. Yeah, and I think one of the more common drugs for tranquilizing large animals is ketamine, which is a highly controlled hallucinogen, basically, at the end of the day. Um, you need a prescription for it and whatnot. So if you go to a veterinarian and say, yeah, I'd like a prescription for ketamine, please, um, what are you going to do with it? Well, I'm going to go try to target a Sasquatch. I'm going to go try to tranquilize a Sasquatch. They're going to say that you've already had enough ketamine. Yeah, like you've already had enough. You don't need any more. <laughs> Can you imagine a Bigfoot frying balls with a dart stuck in it getting pissed off? Oh, yeah. Like, what What if you dose, like, okay, this should be good. And also, we don't know about their metabolism, as you said, their physiology. How fast is do, do they clear their, their system of these chemicals and whatnot? You know, and apes in general have a pretty slow metabolism. So, if we, we say we use gorillas or something like that or chimpanzees for a, a model of metabolisms, and it might be really accurate. We don't know, of course. But what if you, if you underdose it? You're going to have a, a really pissed off and an intoxicated 1200 pound animal on your hands. Um, that is not a good situation. Uh, and of course it's something you hit all the, a lot of the really good points, Bob. So one of the things you didn't mention is, um, the inaccuracy of tranquilizer guns and darts. You have to be within 50 or, or 30 to 50 yards to even get close to one of these things. And at that point, how hard is it to see a Sasquatch, let alone take a picture of one, let alone get it that close to you and accurately hit it in a good place with a dart full of highly controlled narcotics. And he's got hands. You can just pull it out instantly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I think I would. Hey, you guys. It's Michael Perry from Pullman, Alabama. A big fan of you, Cliff, and Bobo. You guys are so funny and so real. Um, so a group of my friends and I had a Sasquatch encounter underneath a man-made dam here in Alabama. I was wondering... How often are reports around either man-made dams or natural dams? I love you guys. Keep it straight. Y'all have a good day. Okay, so uh, sightings around outflows or uh, dams, whether they're natural or man-made, kind of a lot. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, reservoirs are a big setting spot. And more the inflow than the outflow of the, of the man-made dams, the inflow areas usually have more activity. I was thinking the opposite. I was thinking of a um, Stumpy Meadows, Stumpy Reservoir, Stumpy Meadows Reservoir in the Sierras. Like there are two or three sightings um, in that real narrow canyon underneath the dam, and same thing at Wainuchi Lake as well. I was thinking it was the opposite. So you think it's the inflow to the lake, not the outflow underneath the dam, huh? I just read a lot of reports and talked to a lot of people that said that oh, was it the creek that or the whatever the main creek that flows into that reservoir at the top end, like where it gets real marshy and stuff like that. Well, you know what? I think that the commonality here is, of course, like uh, water flowing and also um, canyons. I think that these things are big fans of steep canyons, steep, narrow canyons. Yeah, they can get away from anything they want in those places. Yeah, in fact, I, I'm starting to wonder if that's not where they're usually hanging out because, you know, people see them on the roads and trails down below quite often. People, uh, uh, you know, we look, look at the Olympic project and their trail camera um, activities always on the ridges and whatnot, and they didn't really get anything up there. But what what area is kind of unexplored and uninhabited by humans? It's, it's the steep stuff in between. Yeah. And Sasquatch is looking at their anatomy. You can tell a lot about their behaviors, you know, whether it's the intermembral index, which is, of course, the proportion between the arm length and leg length. The longer armed animals are, are inclined, like apes in general, are, are inclined for bipedalism. But Sasquatches don't have uh, the arm length and proportion of their leg length as the other ape species. It's just a little bit longer than humans. 
um, about 80, 90% versus the 70, 75% in humans. And that would indicate um, some sort of uh, use of hands in some degree, but maybe not on flat ground as much like, like the other ape species, but on those slopes. Um, I think that's a really interesting thing that you could look at their behavior or uh, their possible behavior and correlate that to their arm length um, in, in the way that they might use their arms for locomotion and steadying themselves and climbing and descending and that sort of thing. Yeah, I've talked to people that said that when they go down those really steep slopes, like the very first tracks they found in 58 that they reported, like if you go to those places and look at the canyons where they drop down, it's insane how steep it is. And they also, I've heard from people say that they could tell where they, they got like a flex. They, they look like their heel might be a little bit flexible, like their heel is digging in like a break. Have you heard that? No, but I mean, I know I use, I use my heel that way going up and down hills, so I don't see why they wouldn't, right? But they said like it looked like it almost like was like a giant big toe. I mean, I know that the prints don't show that, but they I told you this it's really steep. It looks like they can curl the heel down, like make it like a little bit of a hook almost for extra stopping power. Well, that 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 midfoot flexibility that they have would be very useful not only for going uphill but for downhill as well. Um, imagine the various ways you can con- contour the foot shape to accommodate that level of uh, or that. That, that steepness of the hill as they go up and down um, that in combination with their arms because they've certainly been used they've been seen using their arms um, you know grabbing onto saplings and whatnot as uh, ascending a hillside going up um, it doesn't it, it doesn't surprise me in the least yeah you know we actually did an official survey where we were filming for one of the uh, documentaries we're working on one of the team members had a sighting of two individuals and we got a full uh, survey of slo- uh, slope grade, um, distance, all that, all that kind of stuff. So that's I don't know of uh, too many reports that have had that kind of level of documentation and measurements. And we'll be able to see that in the documentary when it's finally released. Yeah, fantastic. It's nuts where you look where they where they cross the road, where they came up. It was the steepest part, and where they went cross the road, went up again, continuing up the mountain. They went up the steepest part again. There was like, I mean, talking 10 yards either side, there was like way easier pathways. They just went straight up. Hmm. Yeah, they don't care. I don't think they see, and I know a lot of people say, oh, well, we'll put the, 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 the trail camera on the road and whatnot. I think everywhere is a road if you're a Sasquatch. People that have tracked them over long distances, a lot of them report that they just point in one direction and go. Like they don't care if like, well, I meander this way, go that way. It's just a straight line for the most part. Yeah, Derek Randall's uh, was one of the first people to share that with me, and you, I know you have as well over the years. But Derek uh, in the Blues has uh, he found that out by going to tree breaks. Um, that these tree breaks were in a, just a completely straight line, you know, whether they're fifty, hundred yards apart or more. But when he looked back at them, he's like, "Oh, these are a completely straight line, unless there's some immovable obstacle, like just something you simply cannot go around or go over. Rather, um, they're just going to go." Uh, just in a, in a laser straight line to wherever they're going. Cause there's very few obstacles for a Sasquatch. I mean, I haven't seen any terrain that's slow that they can't conquer. No moneymaker just posted something that happened up on, was it highway 12? I think, um, South of, um, of Elma. And where that Sasquatch was seen was probably, it looked like to me that there was a photograph of where it was seen some, something like 15 feet above the road on almost what looked like a sheer cliff. That's no big deal. I also think about the, those sightings back in the 70s by Bonneville Dam up here on the, when it was on Highway 14. Um, that animal was seen jumping straight up like a 12 or 15-foot cliff and just kept on going like it was nothing. Yeah, I talked about it on here. That guy up in 
Turwer Valley, Turwer Creek up in off the Klamath, Lower Klamath, he saw the thing go up like a 70 to 90 foot cliff. Just it was kind of softer dirt, but it was taking its hand and like Wolverine, the superhero, just sticking its fingers into the cliff face, just jamming them in and rocketing itself up like that. Yeah, then um, one other thing, I remember uh, Robbie, we, we interviewed Robbie during Finding Bigfoot when we did the sighting above the Sandy River there. I spoke to that guy uh, the, the day after his sighting, within 24 hours of where, when he saw it at the same location where he saw it. And um, that thing ascended this really steep uh, um, cliff face, basically. It wasn't absolutely vertical, but it was it was really steep. And he said the thing ran up that hill faster than he'd ever seen any man run on flat ground. Yeah, it's nuts how fast they are. Yeah, there are very few obstacles for uh, an animal of that size um, with that level of strength. So, All right, well, let's go to the written questions. Now, of course, everybody's had a chance to to hear some of our listeners. That could be you. So be sure to go to BigfootAndBeyondPodcast.com and go ahead and submit your, your, uh, your voicemail to us, and maybe you'll hear your own melodic voice on the air. Okay, you want to take the first one, Bobes, the first written question? Daniel Mecklenburg, always related to Carl Mecklenburg, the great Denver Bronco defensive tackle. But anyways, what was the best concert you both have gone to and why? What's yours, Cliff? The best. I always have a hard time with the best because that means the other ones weren't quite as good. And I don't know. Um, well, of course, not, most people who listen know that I'm a big deadhead. I've, I've seen The Grateful Dead 28 times before Jerry died, I think. Um, so I, I had a really good time at a lot of those concerts, near as I can remember, at least. Um, yeah, it was a good, good time. But uh, musically speaking, I'll tell you, Steely Dan blew my socks off because they're such uh, great studio musicians to begin with. Steely Dan was a fantastic show. I saw them on their first tour out back in, what, 95, 96 or something. First time they toured in 20-something years. Uh, but gosh, there are just so many good bands. Madeline Peru, uh, gosh, that's another fantastic small little uh, jazz group there. And oddly enough, her guitar player played for Steely Dan, uh, kind of coincidentally enough. Um, some of the more energetic shows back in the day, seeing uh, Oingo Boingo when, in, in their prime was pretty fantastic. But gosh, the best concert, I don't know. That, that's just so hard to say. But I gave you three or four that I would put in the top five, so that's going to have to be good enough for me. Hopefully, I gave you enough time to think, folks. What, what's yours? The best concert, best lineup I saw was the last festival, and I think it was 82. They had like Bowie, The Clash, Men at Work, um, like that, you know, the kind of new wave stuff. Yeah. That was insane. I mean, I didn't, the, the sound was good, but I was so far away for a lot of it, and it was so hot and dusty. And I mean, it was, it was kind of miserable at the same time with the music. The lineup was so good. A couple of my friends played for some of the reboot bands. Like a, a good friend of mine was, uh, he, he played for Flock of Seagulls. Oh, classic. Yeah, I, I know guys that have done the same thing, like guys that play with like uh, the specials. and. Oh, yeah, yeah. A couple of my friends were in the specials for years. And English Beat and a few, a few others. Yeah, those older. And you're like, you're that bad now? Like, what the heck? Like uh, Josh Freeze playing with Devo since like 2009, I think, from Josh from Long Beach. No kidding. Yep. You ever see uh, any shows at Magic Mountain? Oh, yeah, that's right. Dude, we had the passes for two summers in a row, the music passes to go up there. It'd be like a month. They'd put on like, I remember seeing like the motels, Oingo Boingo. I saw Boingo at uh, Magic Mountain a couple times. We might have been at the same show, Bubs. I saw Berlin there. I saw Berlin. Yeah, Berlin, um, Berlin. They, they oh, played there. We were probably think, at the same show, Bubs. They didn't play there a lot. So Yeah, they'd, they'd play like a month. I think it was each, each month they'd have two headliner bands that play like during the day 
then once again at night. God, I saw some band called Animotion um, at that gig. I saw Sparks one time, which is probably still one of my favorite bands. I was talking about them like a month ago on the podcast. A few, actually, a few of you guys have uh, a few of our listeners emailed me thanking me for turning them on to the band Sparks after seeing the. I saw them there. Did you? Wow. See, yeah, great venue. Great venue. I think the Psychedelic First played there, and oh, that's a great. They're a great band too. Yeah, there's there's a few. Now you know I, I, some of these bands. I know that they're great musicians too because I was in that that one cover band when I was living back in Long Beach. Um, that cover it was a karaoke band. We did uh, the live music for karaoke, and we had like 115 different 80s songs. And it was an 80s karaoke band called uh, Mister Mister Miyagi. Great band. You and Moneymaker came out and saw me once and. It was a lot of fun. And so I got to cover a lot of these songs. And a lot of these songs are just, okay, they're actually not very good songs. They're just fun, catchy pop tunes. But some of those songs, man, I'll tell you, um, they're they're really something. And like good music, like good cerebral music behind that pop tune is pretty cool. Yeah, you know, I, I was so glad they finally got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Two of the bands, oh, that's bands I forgot to mention. But uh, two of the bands that I always thought should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that just got in that were underrated for like how Rock and they were was Devo and the Go Go's. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I and I, you know what? I don't think I've ever seen either band. Now that I'm thinking of it, I did play the same venue the same night as Devo one time, um, but they had the big stage and I was like the the, the restaurant band, you know. But nonetheless, and actually, what for somehow or another, um, we al- we almost stole one of their symbols. Um, it, it was truly, it was an honest, absolute accident, and I don't know how it happened. And we fixed it. We we returned the symbol once we figured out like whose is this? What? How did this get in there? We we found and we went back and returned the symbol. And when you know, if we were actually going to steal it on purpose, clearly we wouldn't do that. But I, I think to this day, Devo thinks that we tried to steal their symbol. So. But we yeah, some of our gear just got mixed up or whatever somehow, even though we were in different rooms. And I don't know how that happened. I think one of the people, like maybe one of the, the stagehands or something, got, I think a symbol got loose and we were the first band they saw. So they thought it was ours or something. I don't know what it was, but we, we returned it. That was a little awkward. It's like when my band isn't being accused of stealing from Devo. Oh, come on, man. Mark Mothersbro, he's, he's like an idol. You know, he does great soundtrack music. Um, he did The Life Aquatic. I don't know if you know that movie or not. He did that soundtrack. You know, he's a subgenius too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, subgenius. If you don't know what the Church of the Subgenius is, it's my favorite religion. Um, it's a pretty fun one. Yeah, yeah, where, where slack is the goal. I went squashing up in the Redwoods with uh, Jane and Gina from the Go-Go's. Oh, that's right. You did. Yeah, Brandon. Brandon set it up. Brandon Kyle. Oh yeah, yeah, from San Francisco. He, I love that guy. Yeah, he's friends with. The, he's really good friends with them. He's like, hey, these we want to. You want to go squash with us? I got a couple of the Go Go's. I was like, hell yeah! And they were so <laughs> funny, dude. They were like, they were like. I mean, they've been together for like forty years. They were like sisters, you know. Like, just it was so funny watching them interact because they just busted balls on each other, and they're like, you know, just like sisters. Well, Bobo, someday we will have known each other for 40 years, and we can be like sisters. (laughs) (laughs) Share dresses and stuff. Exactly, and and our cycles will coincide. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Okay, well, let's go to the next question. This one is from J.D. Matthews. It says, hey, Cliff and Bobo, I love your podcast. Do you think it's possible to have a relationship with Bigfoot like Jane Goodall had with chimpanzees? 
I think you can have a closer relationship, but according to some people, I mean, I haven't, but it seems like some people certainly have. Yeah, some people claim that. I'm not so sure you, you well, then again, I don't know. Jane, had, Jane, Dr. Goodall had them in camp, you know, like she would sit around and they would come through camp and she would allow them to rummage and do whatever. I don't know if if that's possible with Sasquatches, because I think if it was, we there there I think there would be more pictures and whatnot. I just think that that would be a natural inclination. Even though I fully understand that people who claim these things, who claim interactions like this, say that oh no, I would never do that to the Bigfoot. Maybe that's true. I don't know. I tend to believe that. I mean, not everyone. I think that a lot of people are seeking attention or just deluding themselves or what whatnot, but. Just some of the stuff they say rings true to me. I mean, I'd sure like to see proof. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear the stories. I hope it's true. I'd love to generate some sort of or cultivate some sort of relationship like that. But I, I, I just don't know. I mean, you you would think with people claiming this as often as they do, which is of course rare. But you know, I think you and I have both heard these things perhaps a half dozen or so times or more. Um, you'd think there'd be a little bit more to show for it than just words from from various people, you know? Yeah, for sure. I don't know. I mean, but you know what? Um, that reminds me, Janice Carter said that she'd be happy to come on the show with us. And she kind of claims something similar. That's probably the most controversial habituation site case that I know of, like pretty much in Bigfoot history. And some of the stuff they, that they claim just seems like it's misinterpreted or wishful thinking, but other things just... It's like, God, if that's true, that's pretty mind-blowing what they're saying. Yeah, and so far, the I mean, the, the, some of the claims, as you're saying, like the, the Bigfoot knocking on the door asking for garlic in English, I'd have to wonder about, of course, right? Um, and any, I think anybody should be skeptical about that claim. Not saying it's true or not. I think it's important to be skeptical. But uh, the people, or the stuff that I've read um, about dis, debunking all that seems to rely mostly on the incredible claims, which is understandable to be skeptical of, as I just said. And also the habitat doesn't seem to be what the person who was investigating would expect. And I think that's pretty shaky ground. Because if I say it a lot, if there's one thing that Finding Bigfoot, the show, taught me, is that Bigfoots don't give a damn about our expectations about them. They can be found where in the, some of the least expected habitat. Oh, yeah. I mean, exactly. Going around the country and seeing all these spots in person and you know, trusting the people what they're saying, it opens up the possibility where you're going to experience, experience them. So I don't know. There's that. There's that. So I, I don't know. If, I don't know if it's possible, uh, JD Matthews. Um, but some people claim it, and if someday somebody has something to show for it, then I think that'll uh, perhaps open the door for a lot of those claims to be real. But so far, after all these claims and all these years, there's really nothing to show. Not even really good footprint casts, honestly. And that kind of makes me scratch my head and keeps me pretty skeptical about a lot of those claims. Right. Because you're not hurting the animal by taking a footprint cast. You know, you're just not. And there's nothing, I don't think you're going to offend them by doing it. I think that that's just a really convenient excuse for a lot of these people who are either pulling people's legs or are being delusional about stuff or whatever. Um, and maybe there are some people out there, maybe there are some people out there telling the truth. I hope there are. But um, like why, why should we believe them since there's so many, um, you know, uh, what's a snake oil salesman, so to speak in this, in this field. So it's important to remain skeptical about claims. Yep. So the next one comes from Christopher Borgman. 
My best friend and I attended Washington State University in the late 80s, early 90s. My friend actually had the honor of attending one of Grover Krantz's anthropology classes. How do you feel about the value of the work of Dr. Krantz? Take it, Cliff. I think it's fantastic. I, I think that he he basically forms the bedrock of scientific inquiry into this subject. Um, he didn't have everything right, and then he didn't flesh things out to the level that we have them now. Um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Meldrum, of course, has gone a little bit further than what Krantz did. But if you read Krantz's book, um, either the first edition, which is Bigfoot Sasquatch Evidence, or the second edition, which is Bigfoot... No, wait. I'm sorry. The first edition is uh, Big Footprints. And then the second edition is Bigfoot Sasquatch Evidence. Same book, except for the second edition has some addendums. Um, I think that that is required reading for Bigfooters. Like, honestly, if I am to take any of our listeners seriously as a self-proclaimed Bigfoot investigator or researcher, and you have not read Krantz's book and Meldrum's book, and probably Bender Noggles as well, yeah, come back to me when you have. I feel that strongly about it. They, these books form the bedrock of scientific inquiry into these subjects. And that also includes The Scientist Looks at the Sasquatch, um, Volumes 1 and 2, if you can find those. But they're extraordinarily expensive and rare. So Krantz was the editor on both of those, um, which are basically compilations of journal articles um, written by Sas uh, in investigators on the Sasquatch in a peer-reviewed journal. But yeah, uh, Dr. Krantz wrote about the flexibility in the mid part of the foot, although he didn't have it nailed like Dr. Meldrum did because, and you, I think you can forgive Krantz, Krantz was an osteologist, if I remember correctly. He, his specialty was bones, um, whereas Dr. Meldrum's specialty is uh, um, anatomy. And, he, and, and Jeff told me that he uh, got his master's degrees master degree, uh, studying the foot structure of australopithecines. So basically, he is an expert in the, the foot anatomy and bipedalism, which is, you know, really focused, uh, hyper-focused on our subject here. Whereas Krantz um, was kind of a generalist anthropologist. Um, but yeah, Krantz's work um, on not only the Bosberg footprints, um, and but also the Patterson film, um, and the, the, a lot of the Freeman evidence and whatnot. His stuff is indispensable for modern-day Sasquatch research. And again, I cannot emphasize enough, if you listen to this podcast and you appreciate the scientific side of things that I think that uh, is brought sometimes to this uh, show, you have to, you simply have to read Dr. Krantz's book, followed by Dr. Meldrum's book, and then look at the Bindernagel stuff as well. It is indispensable. Without Dr. Kranz, we would not be where we are today. And I'll say it one more time, the bedrock, essentially, of the scientific analysis of evidence. Before that, I mean, Sanderson collected stories, Huevelmans did the same, and the, but really the analysis of other evidence that was collected by, by other people we have to look for a, we have to look at Krantz and his legacy. And I hope that legacy is still going on. Um, oftentimes with Bigfoot researchers, I kind of look, okay, which one of the four horsemen does this person take after? You know, and I'd say like for Dan Perez, for example, Daniel Perez, I say, okay, well, he's kind of a Dehendonite, right? Um, and other people follow in the vein of John Green collecting stories and other people are more media oriented, perhaps in the, um, you know, the, the Peter Burns sort of way. But I'd like to think of myself at least in, in the Krantz camp. I am a crancy kind of guy. And, you know, if, like a lot of people always say, like, they want to see the hard science on it. There's uh, the Relic Hominid Inquiry that uh, Meldrum runs out of Idaho State. If you go to isu.edu slash RHI, that's where you can still get that, that kind of analysis. Definitely have to go to the RHI, the Relic Hominoid Inquiry. 
hosted by Idaho State University. It's an online peer-reviewed journal. Dr. Meldrum is the lead editor, but there's plenty more. Um, so check that out. In fact, a couple of our guests from the podcast are part of that. I believe Shelly Covington, Montana has been brought on as a board member and as part of the scientific, uh, citizen science, um, arm of that work. And it's all for free and anybody can publish in it. You just have to submit it and, you know, submit your paper and get it peer reviewed. At the end of the day, we kind of have to look backwards and tip our hat to Krantz for that. He is the seed that has, that the RHI has grown from. Good on you, Dr. Krantz. Yeah, it makes me, makes me bummed out because, I mean, I was fully in a Sasquatch. I just wasn't in the community because I didn't know about, you know, it was before I was on the internet or anything. And I just regret so much. I never met him. I talked to Renee on the phone. But, I, I mean, I totally could have, you know, either one of us could have, you know, contacted Krantz because he was so open to people and he'd write back to just about everybody. Yeah, I've heard that about him as well also heard he's a prolific smoker so if i I would have been happy to take up smoking if i uh, could have like hung out and had a cigarette with him i don't think he would have appreciated my coughing through the whole thing but um you know i would fake it for him so i don't think i could i couldn't handle that (laughs) that's a bridge too far for the bows yeah all right well let's go to the next question Uh, the next question is from james wilson and james asks love the show is bobo a nudist because he keeps talking about nudity and streaking Bobes, are, are you a nudist? Well, like when we'd stay in hotels, I, as soon as I got my hotel, I'd always strip down, hang out in the buff. And yeah, if it's, if it's warm enough, I'm, I'll, I'll go in the raw. Really? Just outside your hotel room, just like in the woods? Yeah. I mean, if I'm camping somewhere by myself or as long as there's no stinging bugs, like not all day, just maybe like during peak hours, or like, you know, go for a swim in the dry off natural, just hanging out. Right. But do you consider yourself a nudist in any way or you just happen to be naked under your clothes? Uh, I just I just don't, I just don't like having clothes on sometimes. Fair enough. They are constricting. Yeah, exactly. When you got a body like this, you may as well flaunt it. <laughs> well, I don't know. You and I have shared some hotel rooms over the years. I don't know about that one, Bubs. Yeah, that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well I guess that's the short uh that that's the, the, the short answer for an appropriately uh I don't know. There's a joke in there somewhere. I'll just leave that one alone. Why don't you read the next question for us, Bobes? Bill Smith, you and the Finding Baker crew have been to places where there are known predators like tigers in Sumatra and bears in various parts of North America. What sort of safety precautions did you take, especially on solo investigations? Solo, we were on our own. Um, when we were in bear country, we always had a bear guy that had you know a 12-gauge and those flare shots and sprays and air horns. Well, to clarify, grizzly bear country or brown bear country. Right, yeah, not black bear, grizzly country. We'd have a guy like that. Then um, in the Amazon, we had armed guards for humans. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. You know, when I was camping in the Tiger Preserve in Sumatra, all I had were like three or no, probably about four porters who had machetes, parangs, they're called in uh, Indonesia. So we, that's all we had because there's no guns or anything there. Which is so. nothing. Yeah, nothing. Nothing at all. Yeah, but that, they kept a pretty close eye on me. I mean, I broke away for a little while, but they didn't want me going into the woods alone, I'll tell you. But if you got attacked, they, I mean, that night when the people started going, hey, there's a tiger growling around us, those porters bolted. Remember? They, they all sprinted out. They just took off and left us there. Like, dude, if you got attacked, they're not going to, these little 120 pound guys aren't going to attack like a 600 pound tiger with a knife. They, they'd be out of there so quick. 
No, they only came along to report our death to our uh, <laughs> yeah. higher ups, you know. Show where the remains could be, like where the skull could be recovered. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, so not a lot of precautions, honestly. But really, there's not a lot of need for that if you're traveling in a group. You know, the solo the solo camping was, the, of course, the highest risk activity because there's only two of us, you know, Tyler or whoever was filming it and us. Uh, but even then, you know, bears and stuff, mountain lion, it's not a lot to worry about if you're in a group of people. You know, I just don't think that's the case. You don't need to be armed. Three weeks before we got there, like exactly three weeks before, those Japanese tourists went out at night for a night photo thing. And that tiger, they said it would, would have been the same one because that was his territory. Jumped in the middle of 20 people and grabbed the guy in the middle, crushed his skull, and just dragged him off 100 feet off the trail and ate him. Yeah, I was talking about here in North America, though. Like, uh, tigers are obviously a different thing. And, of course, we in Vietnam, we filmed on the Ho Chi Minh Trail where people were in back in the Vietnam War, people were routinely eaten by tigers. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, they, they kept, uh, I think it was used just because you're really into Vietnam War history. I know that was one of your, your big things while we were over there. And wasn't it you who was telling me that, uh, it was a, it was an honor post, a post where like you, if you chose, if you were chosen for this post to keep the communication lines open, you knew that you were going to be held in high honor, but you also knew you're probably going to die because the tigers there were uh, were were um, scavenging off of uh, human corpses and got the taste of flesh. So uh, I knew about that, but I don't think I told you about that. I think that was someone else who told you, but yeah, Vietnam, man. How gnarly was that trail? Just slippery. It rained a little bit, and that mud was insane, and it was so vertical. And I mean, the fact that they <clears throat> lived out there for months at a time and dealt with that environment and dealt with that mud slipping stuff and poisonous snakes and the rocks would get as slippery as the mud. And, I mean, it was just brutal. Yeah, and going back to the creepy crawlies and whatnot that were, I mean, every every little crevice in the rocks had giant spiders in it. Every single one. Uh, it was it was one of the most, and I, I'm not a fan of spiders. You know, I'm not, I, I'm not going to go as far as to say that I'm deathly afraid of them, but looking at an animal like a spider, despite the fact they have eight legs, I do not think of hugs, man. They are creepy as all get out for me. So uh, spiders are one of my things, and everywhere I looked, there was something to be afraid of in Vietnam. Do you remember we were walking in the daylight and that, in Nam, and I walked into that spider web, and that huge banana spider swung down on my face. And it, the top of its legs were in my hairline above my forehead, and its bottom legs were wrapped around my chin and jaw. It covered my entire face. And I just remember seeing it like I could see those two fang things right in front of my nose, like on my nose. And I, I, it didn't bite me, but I swatted it off really fast, like the quickest I ever moved. And that was. That was a pretty exhilarating experience. Yeah, no matter what our listeners may think about Bobo, because he does move a little slowly because he's relaxed. But man, when he moves, Bobo moves fast. They saw the George episode. Oh, well, you know, yeah. Well, running across that road, sure. But I mean, even then, like, you're, you're, you've got fast hands is the thing. Like, uh, you know, when, when you've taken those punches at me and stuff, it's astonishing how fast you can move when you need to. Yeah, that's why I'm good at ping pong. It's one of many reasons you're good at ping pong. <laughs> okay, the next one is from Nolan Gasner. Hey guys, what do you think about the Independence Day Bigfoot footage of the alleged mother Bigfoot carrying the baby Bigfoot? Okay, well, you know, I've seen this one, and it's basically a, 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 a Bigfoot walking and goes behind a rock, and then it picks up a juvenile and walks away. You haven't seen that one, Bobo? Maybe. I've seen so many videos, that almost all of them are crap, right? I don't know if it's real or not. 
Well, yeah, that's what it's going to come down to. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my perspective. And you're sitting at your computer. Why don't you type it up real quick and take a look at it? Okay. Now, personally, I, I saw this. I think it's fake. In fact, I'll, I'm even going to go as far as to say, I kind of think it's CGI. It doesn't look very real. It doesn't look like whatever that is, is actually there to me. It looks like it was later put in. Um, so I, I think it's fake. So I just don't pay any attention to it. I don't know anybody who's investigated it and done size comparisons and talked to the witness and whatever else. Um, see, the problem is most, th- most of those videos and photographs out there are fake. Um, so anything that crosses my desk nowadays, I guess I've become, you know, jaded old jerk at this point. I think it's fake. And then until I have a reason to think otherwise, if I'm not directly involved in it somehow, um, I'm just going to assume that it's BS until I find out someone who I know and trust who has investigated it. And then perhaps I can believe it later. But at this point, um, I'm, I'm just assuming it's fake like most of the other ones. I'm watching it right now. Let's see. It starts off. You're looking at some boulders on a hillside with some evergreens. And then, oh, gosh, that, I can see why people like it. Um, merging from the right part of the screen is looks kind of like a Bigfoot gorilla costume or something. Or, or it could be a real Bigfoot. I mean, the sun's hitting it. It looks pretty good. I mean, there's some uh, evergreens. There's boulders all around. Ducks behind some boulders. Pops its head up looking. Oh, it looks like it has a baby. The arms look short. Yeah, I don't know. There's something about the outline of it. Oh, the legs look like a costume. Yeah, I don't know. There's something about the outline. There's some pixelization or something. It just makes me feel like that. Maybe that's even CGI. It's hard to tell, you know, especially when it goes in front of the boulders. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a dude in a suit, but I don't, I don't see any reason to think it's real at this point. But it looks suspicious to me. There's something about it that doesn't sit right with me. I've talked about this with another investigator who's uh, experienced in some sort of uh, animation stuff, and he says it's not, but there's something about the outline there that just does not sit well with me. I think it's fake, and I think it's an, I think it's not even there. I think it's a computer thing. Prove me wrong. Show me, show me that that thing's actually there, somebody. Tell me I'm wrong. I'd love to know. I don't mind being wrong. I don't have that kind of ego. So That doesn't look CGI to me, though. Yeah, I'll tell you what. Right now, I'm going to send it off to my guy who does a lot of this stuff. Um, and so we'll see what he says. Maybe I can report back at some point. Yeah, I wish uh, someone that was really good at this looked at it for us. Yeah, I'm at the point now where I, I don't bother looking too closely unless I know the person involved. And it may be, you know, that, but that's just where the, the jaded old man in me has come to at this point. So until it's proven to be real, I usually tend to go, it's fake until proven otherwise, because that's what 99.9% are, or the ones that we know are real are so out of focus or so dark or so shaky that uh, or it's just too far away too pixelated like the ones that we know are real they're they're not going to convince anybody well let's go let's move on to our last question bobs yeah go ahead and you, you can take this one all righty we got this from daniel taylor hello cliff and bobo great podcast for such an elusive wary creature why are the majority of sightings road crossings that's where the people are yeah yeah, that, that's that, that's 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 a lot of it right there. Not all of it, but that's a lot of it right there. It's where the people are because to have a sighting report, you have to have a Sasquatch in the same place as a person, um, and that happens where the roads are and the trails are and that sort of thing. Now, you might want to ask why are Bigfoots there, and I think that uh, that answer is pretty clear as well. Um, they're going somewhere, or roads are one of those rare places in the woods where the sunlight reaches the forest floor. 
And wherever the sunlight comes down to the forest floor, that's where uh, the animals hang out because that's where the most nutritious plants are. So think about deer and rabbits and whatnot. They're always on the side of the road. And that, I think, is part of the reason that Sasquatches um, are also in those same areas. Now, you also might want to consider uh, roadkill. There's a lot of free food lying around on the side of the road, let alone like uh, half-empty Dorito bags. So um, I think that some of those things uh, are all kind of they all add up to why Sasquatches are seen along roads more often than anywhere else. So go buy a game camera. I think it's more. I think it's more of them crossing the road than hanging out near the road. Is what I think. But yeah, I mean, it's because when you're hiking or doing anything else, you got to keep your. You know, you're look, watching the ground, and to see one when you're out hiking or something, unless it crosses right in front of the trail, you got to be looking up and see something camouflaged in the brush, however far away it is. Or, but when you're driving, you're you're focused straight ahead, and it, that's exactly where it walks. It's straight ahead of you if it's crossing the road. Yeah, that probably has a lot to do with it too, where you're, the 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 spotlight of your attention is lying, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, a good question. Um, but the fact that so many sightings are on sides of roads indicates that anybody who is interested in Bigfoot at all should get a game, or not a game camera, uh, uh, a dash camera. Get a dash cam. If almost half of sighting reports happen on the sides of roads, why wouldn't you get a dash cam if you want to get Bigfoot footage? Think of how all those road crossing sightings. If, if, if half of the hundreds, if, if 1% of the hundreds of people who uh, have observed a road crossing um, of a Sasquatch, we'd have footage. We'd have a bunch of footage at this point. And so step it up, man. Um, spend 60 bucks on Amazon or something and get yourself a dash cam. If, you, if you're really into it, spend a couple hundred bucks and get a really good one with low, for low light conditions. Um, but we, as a Bigfoot community, should all have dash cameras. And when you get footage, you can thank me. I think, I think if you buy one of those cheap $60, $80 ones, it's the same thing as buying like a, a FLIR TK Scout it's you get that once in a lifetime where it's right there. You got it in frame, but like with the Scout TK, it's uh, it's such a inferior piece of. I mean, it's cheap and easy to buy, but everyone I know that's bought one of those that actually saw something totally regrets they didn't spend twice as much or three times as much and got something that could document it what they saw so much better. Yeah, I guarantee that if you get footage on a dash cam, you're going to wish you had better. That's absolutely true. But I'm going to counter, I'm going to push back on you a little bit on this one, Bubs. Think about all the footage from Russia about four or five years ago when that giant meteorite came down and exploded. Oh, yeah. Think of all the different dash cams that captured that. You can't plan for that. And that footage wasn't so bad. And if they can afford that kind of dash cam in Russia and China and all these places like that, uh, where, where the population, the, the culture of the population is more, more um, inclined to have dash cameras. Here in America, we don't do it for some reason. But in, in, in Russia, and I think China's a real big country on that. Um, there's probably a handful of others, like the Eastern uh, European countries. They, a lot of them have dash cams all running all the time. Um, I don't know why. Oh, because there's so much insurance fraud and stuff. Like, oh, insurance fraud is that it? Okay. Yeah. Well, people assume say you ran into me, and you know, and they they'll cause accidents and whatnot. Uh, well, I guess wherever insurance fraud is rampant, we should should expect to get a lot more um, dash cam footage of these things. But the fact that we got a meteorite, you can't plan on that. It's just as predictable as a Bigfoot road crossing. And it, think of all the cameras that got it. But that wasn't low. I mean, something crossing low light. I mean, just think of all the deer and stuff you see crossing the road and that you don't get a very good look at because it's the edge of your headlights or something. Whereas if you had a good low light 
dash cam, those low light conditions, you'd get a much better. I mean, you'd be you'd be a stat. You'd be like, that's the best money I ever spot ever spent. Yeah, but a lot of people are on a pretty tight budget too. And I think that even the $60 and $80 dash cams at this point, at this point in time, in 2022, are going to be better than the Georgia dash cam police video of that Sasquatch crossing the road then. Probably. Yeah, get what you can. Don't spend more than you don't, don't take food out of your family's mouth or anything, but get whatever you can afford. Hey, Americans are overweight. Their kids would be good on a few less calories for a week or two. I suppose so. I suppose so. But you you always have an enlightening point to bring to to bear, which I, I another reason I appreciate you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, that was the last question for this episode of uh, Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. Thanks for tuning in to the Q and A. And again, just to re- just to reiterate here, if you have a question for us, you can either type it in for us, or you can go to the website and record a voicemail for us and ask us in your own beautiful melodious voice. Um, go to bigfootandbeyondpodcast.com and follow the links and submit your question or comment, um, and perhaps still hear your voice on the air. Um, I'm going to be in Alabama. Um, I'm going to be in a place called Oxford, Alabama, the weekend of June 10th and 11th. I don't know if this is going to come out before then or not. And if it came out afterwards, I hope everybody had a good time. But yeah, for the Alabama Bigfoot Conference. And if you want to go to the website, it's BamaBigfootConference.com. BamaBigfootConference.com. And this is the first one, and I think it's going to be a great event and continue to happen year after year. So uh, I'll see whoever shows up out there. Oh, cool. That sounds fun. Yeah, should be a good one. So I guess that's it, Cliff. That's it. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in and listening. We appreciate it. And until next week, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond.